Oh, good morning to you again. You know, one thing that I noticed over the years, and I'm beginning to live a lot of years, <laughs> I realize that at different times in the course of history of humanity, that God raises up certain people to make a very heavy impact on the society and the world. And uh, it's just amazing to me. And uh, in my, at the risk of uh, sh- showing to you what my generation is, one person that comes to mind is Billy Graham. One person that comes to mind is Billy Graham. Now, Billy Graham, say what you will, he has, like all public figures, he has a lot of critics and supporters. But it's really hard to deny his impact for the gospel he has had on generations of people around the world. And so I had an occasion to visit uh, the Billy Graham Museum at Wheaton College uh, two years ago. And it was very impressive as it marched through the significant times of his life. And um, what you found in there was that uh, his ministry was really deep and wide. It was deep and wide. Uh, he was go- able to reach the breadth of humanity from the great to the small, from the powerful to the powerless. It's just amazing. When you see him one day, he's in Washington, D.C., in the seat of power and, and influence and everything. The next minute, he's over in Africa somewhere preaching to you know uh, millions of people. And it's just amazing how he just reaches, God used him to reach out to people. Now, it's truly amazing that uh, I all say all of this for what? To praise Billy Graham? Well, partly, but mostly to point out the fact that it is God who desires to use his servants to make an impact on the world. And Billy Graham is just one of many, okay? And so uh, we may uh, quickly see that maybe perhaps our, our impact may, may not be as deep, as wide as his was, but God nevertheless wants to use his people to make a spiritual impact on the world. Now, the question that comes up is, are we willing and, uh, and willing and will we do uh, what we uh, should do in order to make that spiritual impact? You see, it's easy to hear about it. It's easy to say, oh, that's a nice idea. But it's quite another thing to grasp that and say, I will do what I can to impact society and the world. And so to see how this might work out in a person's life, you just go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah would be a prime example of that. Uh, if you could put it this way, Nehemiah was a civil servant. <laughs> he served the king. And he served the king not as per se as a high-powered advisor or counselor. He was a cupbearer, okay? He was a, 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 a waiter. He was a, a butler to the king, so to speak. But nevertheless, God chose him out of the mass of humanity in order to make an impact. And so if you go back to the book of Nehemiah, and we'll wrap up the book today, uh, in chapter 13, we will see how this unfolds for us. And so it helps to have a little bit of context. And then so uh, all of this takes place. All the events of Nehemiah take place after the 70-year captivity uh, for the nation of Israel. So a remnant comes out of Babylon and, and out of Persia and goes back to the homeland, which is Jerusalem and its surrounding areas. But when they go back, life is not easy. Why? Because while they were gone, other people had settled into the land. And they didn't particularly welcome Israel back. In fact, they made it very hard on them. And so these were very difficult times for the people of God. Now, God decided to rebuild the nation's identity physically. He did this by helping them rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then he set about to rebuild his people spiritually through the reading of God's word and prayer. And so when we jump into this, what we find out is that 
The beginning of the physical build, rebuilding happened in chapter 1, but it set God's people on a spiritual journey of faith. And this culminated in, the, the, in repentance of sin and spiritual revival that goes all the way to chapter 13 and the, early, the first three verses. Now, what do we learn about all this? Well, hu uh, humans are creatures of habit. We're creatures of habit. Because of our sin nature, our tendency is to live sinfully instead of living righteously. Spiritual revivals can come and go. Yet, it always seems that sin is ever-present and just waiting to make a comeback. It is there that uh, it, some sin will overtake us at any time, and it often does. And so, when we understand that, we can see ourselves, yes, it's great to have a spiritual revival, but we have to be alert because just around the corner, it can all be snatched away. It can all just disappear. Now, why is this happening? If you look at Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, we'll see this description by the Apostle Paul, talking here about the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And he says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And so you ask yourself, why is it that I can, I can have a moment of spiritual revival? I can confess my sins. I can be walking very closely with the Lord. And then kaboom, <laughs> suddenly everything changes. It's because of this very description that Paul has given to us. Sin is not far away, folks. Sin is not far away, and it is just waiting to make a comeback on our lives. So, when we see this happening, God needed someone like Nehemiah to come and set things right. Um, and so, he calls again on Nehemiah to come back to his people a second time. Now, Nehemiah was a humble man who was willing to be used by God to make a spiritual impact again. And that's the amazing thing. Okay, he was the governor of uh, Jerusalem or the, uh, for 12 years. So he goes back home, and he's in the court, and he's back in his familiar surroundings. He's basking in the love and the care the, of the king and the queen of Persia. I mean, he had a good life. And suddenly, what happens? It comes to attend his attention. The people are falling back into their sin. And God puts his finger on Nehemiah and says, I need you again. I need you again to make an impact. And Nehemiah doesn't think twice. He says, here am I, Lord. Send me. I'm with you. And so Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. So this is where we pick up things in uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. So join with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. And there are four significant events that happen, okay? It breaks down very nicely. Four significant uh, events happen. First is found in verses 4 to 9, and that is the reclamation of the temple. Reclamation of the temple. Now, what was going on here was Eliashib, the high priest, allowed Tobiah, the Ammonite, to live in the suite of rooms in the temple, now, you say, how can that be? Well, look at verse 4. Now, prior to this, Elisheb, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, 
where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests, it says in verses 4 and 5. And so, as it were, um, God, I mean, uh, to uh, Eliashib, the high priest, no less, invites an enemy of God to come and take up residence free of charge, in the temple of God. Amazing, amazing. Now, this was a clear violation of God's law because we know in the first three verses, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, that God uh, clearly said in his word that they should not uh, be uh, fellowshipping or allowing the Ammonites and the Moabites to enter the assembly. Look at verse 1. On that day, they read aloud the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. And so, you know, you get that it was a clear violation of God's law. And yet they went off and did it. It was also it was also a violation of their promise that they made back in chapter 10 when they said, we will not allow this to happen. So in this brief, short period of time, they went back, they violated God's law, they violated their own promises that they had made with God. So enter Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah do? Well, look at verse 8. Look at verses 8 and 9. And it says that it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order that they cleanse the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. And so you see here that Nehemiah was correcting an, a partnership issue, association and alliances between God's people and those who actively oppose uh, God. The enemy was living in the camp of God's people. And Nehemiah said, I don't have none of this. This is not right. And so he tossed out all of the belongings. Now, here's a lesson to be learned for all of us. Tobiah and his allies actively opposed the efforts of God's people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God's people need to be careful about drawing too close to individuals and groups that advocate the ways of the world. Such associations can lead to a change in thinking and living contrary to God's will and ways. You see, in our rush, perhaps, to grow, in our rush to be accepted, in our rush to be uh, counted as one of the best, we welcome anybody in to come. And we forget that there are people who actively think differently than God does. And we actually make these kind of alliances. There's a quote by Oswald Sand Chambers, and he says this. Today, the world has taken so many things out of the church, and the church has taken so many things out of the world, that it's difficult to know where you are. <laughs> Isn't that true? Sometimes when you see the methods and the meat that, that are being used in churches today, you think you were at a rock concert. <laughs> you think that you're in a, in a sales meeting. You think... All kinds of things. Why? Because the means and the methods that are used are very similar. Why? Because people with that kind of thinking infiltrate the church and they soon begin to affect the church. 
I was reading another book, and this said this. It made this interesting observation. Uh, there's, there's, they, they quoted somebody, but they didn't leave a name. And it says, Satan isn't fighting the church. He is joining the church. <laughs> He's joining them. And so we have to be careful about this. So Nehemiah separated and cleansed the temple of evil. That was the first thing. The second thing is found in verses 10 through 14. There's restoration of temple stewardship. What was happening here? Well, if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 10, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So the people had neglected supporting the temple. And as a result, the Levites and those who served the temple were forced to return to farming to feed themselves and their families. Okay, there wasn't anything for them. And so they went back to their or their other vocations. Again, this was a clear violation of God's law. How do we know this? Because back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 12, 14 and 18, God specifically told his people, commanded his people to take care of the temple and those who served there. Then the people themselves, they violated their own promise they made in back in chapter 10, verse 39. They had promised, yes, we will do this. We will take care of God's house and we will take care of God's servants. But obviously they didn't. So what did Nehemiah do about this? Well, you look at verse 11 through 14 and you see what he did. This time he was dealing with the problem of stewardship. He first time he was dealing with partnerships. The second time he was dealing with stewardship. And you'd realize immediately that Nehemiah was dealing with some pretty heavy issues, touchy issues, if you will. But nevertheless, he did it. And so in verse starting with verse 11, it says, so I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored to them their posts, meaning the Levites. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, uh, wine and oil into the storehouse. In charge of the storehouse, I appointed, and there's names here of uh, servants that he put in charge, for they were considered reliable and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. So Nehemiah took decisive action there. And he put things back in order. God's people must be faithful in the area of financial stewardship and responsibility as far as it goes to God's house. Now, I would have to say that the five years I've been here, you've never directly heard me give a message on stewardship. Why? Because I think stewardship is pretty good here. All right. And I'm a, you know, I know that and you know that. Okay. So we don't talk about it too much. But may I point out, may I point out, that usually, usually a sign of a healthy church is healthy stewardship. And so it doesn't always mean because you're healthy stewardship, you're a healthy church. But it always means that when there's a healthy church, there's healthy stewardship. And that's what's going on in, uh, 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 among us. But it wasn't happening to the God's people back there in the time of um, Nehemiah. And so uh, the, well, as one person pointed out, they said that, um, uh, uh, stewardship can be actually a thermometer of the health of the church. Okay, it can read the health of the church because if people are holding back, 
There's disunity. There's divisions. There's all kinds of things going on. There's people being distracted. And so that could be a thermometer of the health of the church. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right? And so when you think about stewardship, it is an important issue. And Nehemiah addressed it. He called God's people to account and took steps to assure that it was done. So that's the first one. First one was partnership. The second was stewardship. The third one is found in verses 15 through 22. It's reinstitution of the Sabbath ordinances. Okay? The Sabbath was not being observed. Well, what proof do you have of that? Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath day, even in Jerusalem. So what happened? They weren't observing the Sabbath, which was supposedly a day of rest. They weren't supposed to be buying and selling, but that's exactly what was happening. So what was the issue here? Well, the issue here that Nehemiah was facing was one of lordship, one of lordship. Well, how do you get that? Well, it's clear that God's people made making money a priority over obeying God and his command to rest and to reflect. You see? And so God had given to his people, Israel, the Sabbath. He said, take a breath, back up, rest a while. All right? Don't worry. We're all, we're all on the same page. You'll work hard. You'll get your, you'll get your just deals. You'll be taken care of. But God's people said, oh, no, 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 no. There's sunlight, man. Time to be, time, you know, money to be made. Let's not waste it, you know. And so they went after it. This was a lordship issue. And so what did Nehemiah do there? Well, it, sound, it says in verses 17 to 22, he reprimanded the nobles. And then he went on to shut the gates. Stationed servants to enforce the closure, shouted warnings to the merchants who resisted the efforts, and then he sent he set Levi's Levites as reinforcements to enforce what was going on. And you say to yourself, Wow, this guy Nehemiah <laughs> he wasn't afraid of anybody. He wasn't afraid of, of the officials, he wasn't afraid of the nobles, he wasn't afraid of the business community. He just did what was right. Okay? And that's the amazing thing. He was setting things right. The lesson for us to learn as God's people is that we must value God over money. Value God over money. In what way? Well, we should value God's word over money. If you turn to Psalms, in the book of Psalms, chapter 119, 119. Psalms chapter, uh, chapter 119, verses 72 and 127. 72 says this, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Whoa! Whoa! Then you you tie that on to 127. What does it say there? In 120, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. You see? And so somehow, some way. In our thinking, in our living, we've somehow demonstrated that making money takes priority over God. Over God and God's word. It also 
we should value serving God over money. If you turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, he says. And then if you go over to chapter 6, verse 33, you'll see also that we should value seeking God's kingdom over um, making money. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but you get the idea here. You get the idea here that Nehemiah was dealing with some very serious matters. At first, you say to themselves, oh, they're just individual events, no connection, no importance. But you quickly see they do because he affects the partnerships we make, the associations we make. It affects the, the, the stewardship of what we do with our funds and, and our responsibilities. It affects lordship. It affects the place of God and over money. And so when you start beginning to see this, you see yourself very quickly, very quickly, that Nehemiah had his job uh, cut out for him. It wasn't going to be easy. Now, apparently, God wasn't finished, and so he gave him one more tough one. And this was found in verses 23 through 29. That's the resolution of marriages. Resolution of marriages. What happened here? Well, let's, the scripture speaks for themselves. Look at verse 23 and 24. It says, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, the Philistines, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, have spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. And so what was happening here was that there was this marriage marrying of people in the land, people who were outside the faith. And so there, there was um, a, a consequence of that. And that was because the children spent more time with their mothers that they would start learning the language of the, the, the foreign uh, partner. Okay, And as a result, they didn't speak Hebrew. They did not understand the word of God. They didn't understand half the things that were going on in the community. And so they were identifying more with their uh, non-believing partners than they were with their believing uh, uh, parent. And so this brought dire consequences. Again, this was a violation of God's law. Exodus chapter 34, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But this also, again, was another violation of the promise they made back in chapter 10, verse 30. So what did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah was facing a relationship issue with significant spiritual consequences. Okay? Never, 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 ever think that your relationships that you form today have no spiritual significance. They do. They do. And so you need to be mindful of that. And that sort of helps us understand Nehemiah's reaction. Because Nehemiah's reaction, I guess you could say, were pretty severe. <laughs> they were pretty severe. Look at uh, verses 25 and 26. It says, So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then in verse, uh, so in verses, uh, verse 25, all of this 
uh, happened. And then in verse 26, he reminded them of Solomon's example. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him, even him, to sin. And so that gives you a taste. It gives you a feel for how serious this is. Okay? Now, if you look again on verses 27 through 28, you see that he even went so far as to expel the grandson of the high priest. Do we not... uh, Verse 27, it says... Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sambalat the Hornite. So I drove him away from me. Now look here. He didn't you know, drive away all of the foreign wives. He didn't do that. But rather he picked on the, the high priest because he was trying to keep the 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 spiritual leadership in uh purify pure and so that's why he took this drastic action the actions were serious because the consequences were serious present and future generations could be walking away from god okay so this is a very important issue now i've been in this in this uh, serving the lord and i've I've been a christian uh, a follower of christ i believe for many many years and probably more than some of you are old. And I've seen a lot of different things go over. So I'm going to take a little bit of time. I know that this may be, um, it, has, it has its consequence. But let me, let me share with you a couple of things. How should the church react to those who have partners that are not of the same faith? Okay? I think this is important. Please listen. Okay? There's two situations. There's before and after. Got it? Before, after. Before, after. Okay, got it? Before... We have a responsibility to instruct and explain. If you look at uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 2. And if you look at this very carefully, it says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, or urge with great patience and instruction, it says. We have a responsibility to go to the people before and say, Do you know what you're getting into? Do you know what the possibilities are? Okay, but you do it with great patience and uh, and 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 careful instruction. Okay, that's before. What happens after? Now this is something else. After it happens, you help and you love. You help and you love. What happened to the rebuke? <laughs> what happened to the, you know and all that? That's past. The decision has already been done. Okay, now we shift into helping and loving these couples. Okay, help. How? Help to win the unbelieving spouse by praying for them and by being a, living before them. If, again, First Timothy chapter four, verse twelve. Verse twelve. What does it say there? It says here: Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Who believe? You see these these these. Spouses that don't yet believe in Christ. They're looking for an example, a living, breathing example of what it is to be a child of God. And that's what we are to be to them. All right? That's what we are to be to them. So we can help them by praying and by being an example. The second thing is we're to love them. Well, love is a verb. 
That means there has to be action, (laughs) okay? Love can be a noun or it can be a verb. But in this case, we want to take it in... Uh, as a verb, and so we want them to, w- to help them by loving them and helping them through the conflicts and challenges they may uh, experience. Now, I don't have time to go through every passage, but please write them down or make a mental note of them, okay? Exhort them to love one another as God would want, okay? Ephesians chapter 5. In other words, in exhort the person, urge the person who is not a believer to treat their non-believing spouse, like God would want them to be treated, with love and respect. That's what chapter 5, verse 33 says in Ephesians. Exhort them to seek God's power through his spirit. Be filled with the spirit, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. The third thing, exhort them or urge them to stay together, if at all possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 gives us some guidelines on that. You see? And then the third, last thing is encourage them with the hope that they might, their mate might be, uh, might be, their spouse might be saved. First Peter chapter three verses one and two. And so these kinds of things we can do as the community of God, with for people who who God puts across our path who are in this situation. So what? If, there's two. There's two situations, right? What are they? Before and after. Before and after. Before. And what? Some of you got it. Before and after and... Oh, now you got it, okay? (laughs) You see? And so if you keep these things in mind, you can see a tremendous impact we can make on our community. So Nehemiah confronted sin in the heart, the home, as well as in the community. And, 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 And this is just revolutionary to us in the sense, wow, this Nehemiah is really something special. He is. However, let's keep in mind, God wants to use you individually and GBC collectively to make a spiritual impact on our world. And so to do this, though, we need to be like Nehemiah. We need to be like Nehemiah. Okay? Like how? Nehemiah was, first of all, discerning. Discerning. He discerned the will of God at any given point of time. And so Nehemiah discerned God was calling him and God's people on a spiritual journey. To, be, to rebuild physically and spiritually. To leave the comfortable courts of Persia for the ruins of Jerusalem. He discerned that very quickly. Chapter 1, the burden upon his heart and all of these kinds of things. He understand God wanted the people to return to the land to be God's people again. And he saw God miraculously arrange the circumstances to make it possible by getting the permission and the provisions of the king himself. Now, in like manner, we must understand God has called us on a spiritual journey, taking us out of our comfort zones so that we would have to love, trust, obey, and depend on Him, uh, uh, and depend on Him as we build a new building physically and rebuild ourselves spiritually. You see, sometimes we don't like that. God calls upon us and He says, I've got a journey for you to go on. I've got a mission for you to go on. I've got something I want you to do. What's our first reaction? Well, let's see. How many excuses can I come up with? You know, this kind of stuff. Or how many, how many times can you say, I don't have time? How many times can you say that? And how dare we say that to God? You see, when God calls his people on a spiritual journey, he is calling us to something special. You know, one time I was, I was thinking about this and, and it just struck me. It just struck me. God is not calling us to acquire another thing, thing, a building, okay? God is not calling us 
to acquire a thing. He's calling us to acquire an experience. An experience. A journey with God. You see? I've gone through this uh, three to four times already, depending on how many buildings you call buildings, okay? And I'll tell you, I've learned so much about God and myself through that, those journeys. It's an incredible, incredible experience. So God is calling. God, uh, Nehemiah was discerning. He was discerning enough that God was calling his people to a spiritual journey. Nehemiah, number two, was dauntless. He was courageous and brave and valiant in following God. He wasn't afraid of anything, anyone or anything. He was not afraid of any challenge or conflict that may arise. He was willing to tackle sin from the big or small to the major to the minor in the community or in the home. And we will be challenged to pray, think, and sacrifice to be good stewards of the freehold land God has promised, has blessed GBC with. To do what? To make disciples of Jesus Christ of present and future generations. You know, sometimes one of the things I have to battle as a pastor, when people say, what is our spiritual direction? You know, where are we going? What are we here to do? You know, says, God said it all. He said, make disciples, man. How many times do I have to say that to you? You see? But it's to make disciples, evangelize, edify, and equip, and engage, and, 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 and encourage, and all of those things that we talk about. You see? But somehow we, it's not sexy enough. Somehow it's not, it's not media friendly enough. You know, and we want some fancy tagline. We want some fancy, you know, banner to go over the top of our heads. All God says to us, make disciples. Okay? And all that that involves. And so this, and we're going to have to be brave. We're going to have to be courageous when that, when, uh, uh, to carry that out. Fourth thing, third thing. Nehemiah was decisive. He acted. He didn't hold back or look back. Nehemiah acted decisively after seeing the obvious conditions and circumstances around him. We will, in, 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 uh, in his situation. So in GBC, when we see how the Lord has changed government policies for larger uh, uh, buildings to be built, the building of an MRT station just within walking distance, upcoming nearby developments in Bedari and Mount Vernon, and so on and so forth. These are things that are happening that we need to seize the moment, okay? But we have to act decisively. We can't sit around and keep talking about it. We can't keep sitting around and dreaming about it. We can't keep, you know, hanging around and debating about it, you know? Let's make up our minds and let's decide one way or the other, okay? Yeah, you need facts. Yes, you need all kinds of things to consider. I, I know that. And there are committees, there are teams, there are subcommittees of subcommittees of subcommittees. I don't know how many sub-subs we have, but we have them all, and they are digging ferociously everywhere to try and get up all the details that you possibly can make. But at the end of the day, as you like to say here in Singapore, at the end of the day, you've got to make a decision, yes or no. Nehemiah made up his mind, and he took action. The last thing, Nehemiah was dependent. Yes, he was discerning. Yes, he was dauntless. Yes, he was decisive. But he was always dependent upon God. There are no less than than 10 prayers in the book of Nehemiah. 
okay? Ten recordings of his praying. Four of those appear in this last chapter by themselves. Four. Is this guy dependent or what on God? I think he is. I think that's very obvious. He is dependent upon God. And so uh, we will have to be dependent on God all the way through. We must avoid the temptation to depend totally on ourselves, on our own resources, plans, and schemes. If we don't, if we depend on ourselves, we will not see God do anything. We will only see ourselves doing something. You see? And so there are times when we have to let God do his work. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I, for one, am excited to see what God's going to do. I'm excited to see what God's going to do. He is going to throw us so many curveballs. He's going he's to throw so many changes. There's so many changes to the plot. It'll be amazing that we even come out of it at all. But that's the journey. Of, that is the beauty of journeying with God. You see? And if there's something that perhaps all of us need is a fresh look at God. But now will we let him show himself to us? Huh. Wow, that's a question that we all need to contemplate. God wants to use in me to make a spiritual impact. And to do so means we have to be discerning, dauntless, decisive, and dependent upon God. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Do you want it? Do you want to journey with God? Let's pray. Father, as we come together, dear Lord, so many challenges face us, both in the community and in our homes and in our church. And yet, Father, you are well aware of all of them. And you are willing and wanting to walk with us. Now, are we willing to walk with you? May you help us all to be like a Nehemiah. Help us, Lord, to be all of the things that he was discerning, dauntless, decisive, and dependent upon you. Lord, we look forward to what you will do in our lives if we will let you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.